Will you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, this morning, many of us are uh, tired and distracted and even wearied from the fight that this week was, and I pray now that as you have refreshed us in worship, now your word would really strengthen us, Um, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey what it is we're about to hear. Pray that your spirit would prevail and uh, protect and guide my words so that yours might be exalted supremely. Lord, we need grace, we need kindness, we need direction, um, we need correction from you, and we welcome it, we invite it now through your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let me start by asking a question of you to help you think about what we're going to talk about this morning. Is this a problem for you? Let's say, uh, hang on, I got a problem with my microphone. It is a, uh, essentially, it's a, patter, it's a pastor with a half a bottle of wine. Is that a problem for you? <laughs> um, what, for some of you, it might be a problem because it's here in front of God and everybody, but what about at a restaurant? Um, by the way, this is not mine, and I will not disclose my supplier, okay? Um, <laughs> What about at a restaurant with my meal or in the privacy of my home? But what about you? Is this a problem for you? Should it be? How do you figure it out? How do you know if this is okay uh, for you or, or for me? Um, that's... It's not precisely what we're going to talk about, but it's symbolic of the kinds of issues that we struggle with. If it's not drinking, what about dancing? What about slow dancing? What about really slow dancing? Is that okay? Depending on who you're dancing with or where? Um, What about tattoos? Is that okay? What about secular music? Rock and roll? You know what that means, don't you? What about hard rock and roll? What about secular country western music? What about short shorts for ladies? Guys, trust me, it's just wrong for you, okay? (laughs) I don't have scripture on that, but as one from whom the Lord has given mercy, it's just wrong. <laughs> but what about ladies? What's acceptable? When, what's modest? What's, what's not? What, what about movies? PG? PG-13? R for redemptive? What, what's, how do you know? How do you decide? Um, if I were to draw a circle, you can think of it this way with me this morning. Let me move this up so hopefully all of you can see it a little better. Um, and I have to do this because I can't figure out how to draw a circle with our software, believe it or not. Um, how do you figure out if what's in 
is out and what's out is in, how do you figure that out? If this is not okay and this is okay, and the okay is really much bigger than this sheet of paper, okay? God gives us tremendous liberty in Christ. It's the size of these walls. But there are obviously some things that are not okay. How do you figure that out? How do you decide for someone who is a fully devoted follower of Christ, what's okay? What's permissible? What's, what's beneficial? Um, my assumption this morning is that you are a follower and that following matters to you. Um, until you get those things right, this discussion will be rather inapplicable to you. So how do you know, for those of us who desire to follow Christ, how do you know what's okay? Now, when we open up the book of 1 Corinthians, we are reading a correspondence from between Paul and the ancient church in Corinth around issues like this. Uh, there have been several letter exchanges, of which we have one preserved um, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, they had written Paul some questions about some issues, and he is writing back in the book that we call 1 Corinthians. Um, their question is different than the shape of ours. Their issue is different than the shape of ours. But the principles Paul is teaching them are timeless. And honestly, that's the beauty of this book because it comes to us from God. There's a timelessness about it that makes it of tremendous value for us. Um, because it is sourced in God, though it was written for a particular time and place, it has value showing Christ to all of us in every time and place. So if you will open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning, that's where we'll be. And we find out in chapter 8 that the Corinthians have raised this issue. Now about, Paul says, now about food sacrifice to idols. In other words, they had written him about this question. He's going to address it. Food sacrifice to idols. He says, we know that all possess knowledge... Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Let me see if I can kind of summarize what's going on in this interaction that Paul's uh, writing to the church in Corinth about. They had a question about eating meat sacrificed to idols. What we're reading is Paul's answer to that. Their question may very well have been more of a, an assertion, a challenge to Paul's previous teaching on this matter because, honestly, Gentile Christians were instructed by the apostles in the book of Acts not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So they have instruction on this, but evidently the Corinthians had a group that were saying, no, it's okay. Y'all come join us at the temple. Because in that day, meat was not particularly common, as I understand it. So if you wanted meat, you would go down to the pagan temples. And there, um, you could eat meat 
that was, had been sacrificed to the gods, but was now being cooked and offered to anyone who came there as an act of worship. It, it, it sort of almost functioned as the restaurant of the day. Plus, leftover meat that had been sacrificed to the idols would then be sold in the marketplace. So they had a number of points where this was an issue pressing up against the people of the day. Now, the group in Corinth that was saying this was no big deal were saying it for a couple of reasons. They had knowledge. Okay? They had knowledge that there is only one true God, and so the idols are really nothing. They are make-believe. There's only one true God. They had that knowledge. And then they also had knowledge in verse 8 about food. It says, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So they're operating out of this understanding. If idols are nothing and food doesn't really matter, then we're free. We can eat whatever we want, sacrifice to idols, not sacrifice to idols. And Paul's response here is going to go on in and out of the next couple chapters addressing uh, this issue. But um, as he moves along in chapter 10, you're going to find that he gives them some clear direction that makes us realize that the whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, especially in those temple meals, was not just a matter of conscience. There's more going on there than that. But in our passage today, he really is approaching them from a different tact. He doesn't prohibit it. He works with a set of principles that are really free, um, are really valuable for us um, as we think about these matters as well. Now, Paul draws a distinction here in terms of how they make their decision. It can't be just about knowledge. He says, this is why he introduces this whole idea at the beginning He's talking about food sacrificed to idols, but then he turns to knowledge and love. He says that's really the issue that this is revolving around. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. He is exposing the limitations of just knowing what's permissible as being sufficient for justifying our choices, our actions. Um, They essentially had an ethic of knowledge that was knowledge-based. If they knew it was okay, they understood it, then they were free to do it. And Paul is advocating for the supremacy of love here amongst all other virtues as the basis of deciding what we will and will not participate in. Um, So, Paul's saying knowledge alone is not enough. There's a greater factor. And that's love. So we live in Wake Forest in kind of the capital of knowledge. Lots of people here in town getting knowledge. Um, Paul's not saying that knowledge is bad, but knowledge without love will puff you up. So imagine with me that you're one of the knowledge seekers here in town. You're enrolled at the seminary and you're pursuing what you'll often hear called an MDiv, a Master of Divinity. That means you are a master of the things of God. It's kind of a pretentious uh, title. Um, It could be worse. You could have a doctorate of divinity, which means you're smarter than God. Okay? That's what knowledge will do to you. It puffs you up. Okay? It can make you think you're smart. But you're here getting this knowledge. Okay? You're pursuing an MDiv. And turns out you're good at it, let's say. You're acing all your classes. 
Um, you're learning all the big words. You're learning all the old, dead, foreign words. Um, and they're saying, your profs are saying to you, you know, you should really consider doctoral work. You're that good. You're that sharp. You're that bright. But at home, you're not getting A's. You're not passing at home. You don't love your wife well. You don't love your kids well. Your neighbors don't even recognize you if they see you in the store. All they know is you're the weird guy that won't work in his lawn on Sundays, won't come to their parties. You're not even getting passing marks in love of neighbor and loving your family. Now, if that's you, then when you walk across that stage and you get a piece of paper that says Master of Divinity on it, that's all you've got. All you've got is a piece of paper. It qualifies you for nothing in the church. If all you have is knowledge without love, then you are not qualified to teach or lead or shepherd in the church. You're disqualified. Someone has said, some Christians grow, others just swell. Could that be said of you? Are you one of those kinds of Christians? That you're learning and learning, but not maturing and not growing and not being transformed by the truth that you're learning? Is your head full of information, but your heart grown cold towards the neighbor that Jesus says you are to love? See, Paul is saying that knowledge is not enough to make God-honoring decisions in our life. We are constrained. We must be constrained by love. And Paul readily admits their point. Their theology is right. Idols are nothing. There is only one God, he says. For us, there is but one God, the Father from, from whom all things come and for whom we live. Um, he says, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. And thereby, he, he exalts Jesus to that divine level. Um, but honestly, that's not really what Paul's concerned about in Corinth in this chapter. He's not really concerned about their doctrine at this point. And that's not my concern for us this morning. Paul is concerned with the church then and there, and I am concerned with the church here and now, right here and right now, with the question, how well are we really loving each other? How well are we really loving God? Because Paul links them together there in the early verses of this passage. Paul's concern is that we love well, both horizontally and vertically. So how are we doing? Really? Do we defer to one another in love, or do we insist on our way? Do husbands really lay down their lives for their wives? Do wives really love and honor and respect their husbands? Are weaker believers protected here by our love? Or are they led into places where they stumble and Paul will say are destroyed? 
Paul would write elsewhere, he'd say, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. He's going to end our letter in chapter 16 with this exhortation, do everything in love. We must be constrained by love, Paul is saying. Back in our passage in the seventh verse, he says, not everyone knows this. In other words, not everyone knows that idols are nothing in light of the one true God. Not everyone knows that. Not everybody gets that. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So because of their idolatrous pasts, Paul's saying, some people defile their consciences when they return to actions that are so intimately associated with their past acts of idol worship. It's a sin for them. He says, by exercising our freedom in Christ without love, we can lead a brother or a sister into an activity that defiles their conscience to actions that, he says, will destroy them. So if we drink or dance or chew or tattoo or whatever we do, without concern for how it affects our brother and sister in Christ, by the exercise of our freedom, we can become a a stumbling block to them. In the book of Romans, in the 14th chapter, Paul's tackling some related issues. He's answering the question again about whether or not it's okay to eat meat, though, without our particular context. And he says, the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats... Because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. If we operate outside of faith, for us it is sin. If we lead a brother or sister outside of where they can live by faith, we have led them into sin, Paul said. There's a subtle underlying point that I want to make sure that you don't miss in in this, that's inherent in this truth, and that is simply this. You are being watched. You are being followed. If you are a follower of Christ, then people are watching you, and they are following you. Of course, that's true here of our elders and our leaders and pastors and people like that. But it's true for every one of us. In every home, mom and dad, you are being watched. You are being followed. In every home, older siblings, you are being watched. You are being followed. You know, Time Magazine reported that In an article, they said, on the whole, siblings pass on dangerous habits to one another in a depressingly predictable way. 
a girl with an older pregnant teenage sister is four to six times as likely to become a teen mom herself. Four to six times. Younger siblings whose older siblings drink are twice as likely to pick up the habit when it comes to smoking. The risk increases fourfold. You are being watched. You are being followed. Is your example endangering the vulnerable by the reckless, selfish exercise of your freedom? Or are you protecting them by yielding that freedom in love? Now let's be clear. Paul is talking about causing someone to stumble. That is, causing them to sin, not causing them to frown. Okay. If you live trying to not make someone, not disappoint someone, not offend someone, displease someone, you will be miserable all your days. You cannot live that life. That falls into a whole other biblical category called the fear of man. Paul's not talking about not annoying anyone or not making anyone frown at your behavior. He's talking about not setting an example that would lead some in, someone into sin as they follow your behavior. Okay. It's, it's decidedly different. For instance, if there's a lady in our church, this is a purely hypothetical lady, I've never met her, I don't imagine that she exists, I pray that she doesn't. Um, there's a lady in our church who thinks that it's wrong for a pastor to wear a beard. That's just nasty pastor ought not have a beard, ought to be clean-shaven like Leviticus or something, you know. Okay, Paul's not talking about that situation, because by my example of sporting a beard, I cannot lead her into sin whereby she would follow my example and sport a beard, okay? (laughs) That would just be weird. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about whether or not by your behavior and mine, we would lead someone outside of faith so that they cannot offer their actions to Christ as worship with a clear conscience. So if someone is bothered because you drink wine with your meal, Paul's not talking about that. But if someone follows your example and they drink, and it violates their conscience, and for them it becomes a sin, or they follow your example and they go to a place where they cannot control themselves and they become drunk because of your example. Paul's talking exactly about that situation. I hope you see the difference. So, in light of what Paul's saying here, what's in and what's out? So let's, let's return to our initial question and try to put Paul's teaching into some kind of answer f- for this. And let's, I'll let you think about it with me in terms of um, concentric circles that I'm going to try to draw over here. Circle being the only shape other than a line that I can draw. Okay? So if we have this circle of things that are um, off limits for us as believers. It's a fairly small circle, but it's off limits. The first thing you do to try to figure out if something is in that circle is you would look, I'm going to just put an S here to stand for the scriptures, okay? You search the scriptures to see if God has spoken on a matter. If God has spoken on a matter, then that settles it, okay? 
There's no more debate on the issue. You may be wondering, is it okay if I sneak some crib notes into class and uh, get a better grade on this test? Is that okay? Is it okay if I um, kind of fib a little bit to my teacher about why my homework wasn't ready on time? Okay, scriptures are clear on that. You got your Old Testament, you got your New Testament. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Okay, no question, it's settled. So if we go back to our original question, um, if Scripture prohibits the drinking of alcohol, then it's done. No more questions asked. That's our first way of thinking about things. Now there's a second... um, a second way of thinking about this stuff, or a second constraint on us, and that would be what we've already talked about with Paul. You can think of it this way. I'm going to put a C here for conscience. Okay? Our conscience would constrain us beyond, perhaps, the explicit prohibition of Scripture. Our own conscience. And again, Paul addresses this in Romans 14, as we've seen. He says that the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So if you have a deeply held conviction that an action is wrong, even though the scriptures do not clearly and uniformly prohibit it, and you participate in that action, it's a sin for you. You cannot offer offer it to God purely as worship. And if you cannot... um, then you should refrain from it. For instance, there's a loophole in the tax code where pastors can get out of paying Social Security tax. Instant 15% pay raise. The trick is, to qualify, you have to have a religious or theological objection to receiving that money from the government. You have to feel like it is morally or biblically wrong to take that money. So, in your first couple years as a pastor, you have a chance to opt out of Social Security, get, get a 15% bump in your pay. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Except my problem was, I didn't have a biblical or theological objection to receiving payment from the government in these matters. So, I am sort of happily paying Social Security tax, self-employment tax, from the day one till now. Okay. Basically, Paul's principle is, When in doubt, don't. If your conscience is not clear on a matter, don't go there. Don't do it. Now, if someone else takes that deduction, personally, I think he's deceiving himself. But um, if it's a legitimate matter of conscience, I must not judge him for exercising his freedom. So again, if we return to the question of should I drink or not, because we don't have a clear prohibition in Scripture on the matter, it would be a matter of conscience for us. And if my conscience, if I cannot drink and offer it to God as worship, then I ought not, I ought not partake of alcoholic beverages whatsoever. Okay. That'd be one part of that circle. But there's another set of consciences Paul has been calling us to be concerned about, our brothers' and sisters' consciences as well. And this is what he's been addressing in our chapter, where he says, Not everyone knows this, that idols are nothing. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. 
And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So the issue here again is, is by our model, we can cause our brother or sisters to follow our actions to our place where they cannot worship God and will stumble into sin. So when in the company of a brother or sister with a weaker conscience... Here are three things we should, we, should, um, we should do. First, defer in love. We relinquish our freedom out of love and concern for another. Paul ends our chapter with this beautiful statement. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. I will fully relinquish my freedom forever, if need be, to protect my brother. Love rules. Love trumps in the exercise of freedom. We defer in love. Secondly, you don't recruit or try to embolden their conscience. None of this, oh, come on, the Bible says it's fine, come join us. Come on in, the water's fine. Paul's warned us that our freedom might cause a brother to stumble by those kinds of actions. We dare not do that. Thirdly, you don't flaunt your position as superior. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Beware the puffery of knowledge. It can make you think that you're superior. And in Romans, again, Romans 14, Paul says, The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. Then he also says, the man who does not eat everything must not command, condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. There is no superiority to be felt or expressed in these matters. We are not to flaunt our position as superior and definitely not try to influence them to partake with us. So conscience constrains us as well. And that latter point really leads us to that circle that we've been talking about mostly today. And that is, let me just write it out there, it's love. Love constrains us even beyond our conscience. And in fact, it is love that motivates our conscience. Listen to these closing verses. They're powerful from our passage. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And then he says, therefore, If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. To love our brother or sister is to defer to them, to protect them, to consider them as more important than ourselves. That love constrains us. But Paul here is also saying the love of Christ constrains us. To love Christ is to lay down our freedoms and rights so that we will not sin against him by leading our brother or sister into sin by our example. And and this is really the kicker for Paul here. This is what makes him say, I will give it all up if need be. Because all sin is ultimately against Christ. He will lay down his rights totally if need be, so as not to sin against his Savior by leading a brother or sister into sin. Paul says, if I thought that it might lead someone into sin... I would never do it again. 
would you yield your freedom? Whether to drink or to wear or to watch or to do or whatever for the good of another? For the love of Christ? Now I suppose just for our purposes in thinking a little more fully about this this morning we could add another circle out here. We could say this is the circle of wisdom. And wisdom just helps us ask some really important questions that are really rooted and grounded in love. Wisdom says, where will this lead if I do this? Wisdom says, will this master me if I do this? Remember back in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Wisdom says, is this worth the risk? Is it worth the risk of destroying my brother or my sister? Is it worth the risk of sinning against Christ? Really? Is that drink, that dress, that movie, that freedom really worth the risk? Wisdom asks the question, can I glorify God in this? Paul's going to say in a couple of chapters, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Can I do that, wisdom says? Can I do this thing for the glory of God? So, in these issues, for instance, like in the issue of drink, does Scripture forbid it? If Scripture does not, does my conscience forbid it? Does the conscience of my brother and sister, would I lead them astray by doing it? And that leads us to love. Does love constrain me from participating in this activity? Does wisdom? Is this a wise thing to do in the environment that I'm in? Um, the beauty of all of this is, this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Ex- he is ask- Paul is asking us to follow Christ. Because in Philippians chapter 2, we are called to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than ourselves, more important than ourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He laid down his rights. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, Paul says, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so it's our privilege now as a church family to celebrate the great demonstration of love at the Lord's table that Paul is calling us to emulate in 1 Corinthians 8. When On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. 
And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same fashion, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood for the remission of sins it's given, for forgiveness. Do this also in remembrance of me. And in this act, Paul tells us, we have the great demonstration of the love of God for us when Christ laid aside his rights and freedoms and became a servant for us. Let's pray together as we worship him. Jesus, we, we give you praise and we thank you for showing us how it is we are to love. Sometimes the issues are confusing to us, but you have made it clear. When love rules, we are least important. And our rights matter little. But, but on our own, Jesus, we are horrible lovers. Selfish and prideful and weak. And so you did more than show us the way. You became the way. You bore our sins on the cross in your body. And your blood, your life's blood was shed so that we might with you rise to newness of life. And so we celebrate now this meal and remember this amazing love poured out for even the likes of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At North Wake, the table is open to everyone who is a follower of Christ who is following him, who is desirous to walk with him, who is willing to repent of their sin and lay it aside. So if that describes you, then come and celebrate the love of God for you at this table.